From WGBH News in Boston, this is The Scrum. I'm reporter Adam Riley. Welcome to The Scrum Podcast, where each week we talk about politics and media from Beacon Hill to the Beltway. Joining me is WGBHnews.org senior editor Peter Kadzis. Peter, good to see you as always. Thanks, Adam. Great to be here. In a few minutes, we'll hear from Lynn Ketterer, who topped our prediction challenge ranking. Not only did Lynn accurately guess the winner of five different statewide races, she came remarkably close to guessing the actual percentage of the vote that each candidate received. I'm also going to be heading out in a few minutes to chat with former Senator Mo Cowan. The location is still to be determined. Maybe the Capitol Coffee Shop, maybe the filibuster. Peter, do you have any suggestions between those two? Well, I'm a filibuster devotee. All right. I'll bear that in mind for when I'm over there. Now, my understanding is that Senator Cowan is a big Capital Coffee fan. So we'll see. Well, Well, you know, we are the souls of diversity. (laughs) All right. Let's you and I start by talking about Charlie Baker's big week. The governor-elect met with the legislative leaders who he's going to be working with when he becomes governor. All Democrats, of course, uh, House Speaker Bob DeLeo, Senate President-in-waiting Stan Rosenberg, and outgoing Senate President Therese Murray. He also made his first cabinet hire, picking Jay Ash, to head up the Department of Housing and Urban Development, replacing Greg Bialecki. And now the Globe is reporting, Frank Phillips, uh, the estimable Globe reporter, uh, writing in today's paper that there's a bit of a, a revolt brewing among the Republican base in the state, people who don't like Baker's efforts to flex his muscle and take control of the state party, in addition to running the state proper as governor. You know, I think there are two reasons for that. One is, and this is an assumption on my part, there has to be some just pent-up anxiety or frustration from the more conservative wing of the Republican Party about Charlie Baker running as a moderate. I mean, the party was remarkably disciplined during this election. They didn't do anything crazy to undermine their candidate. Now, what's interesting is, unlike Weld and unlike Salucci, Baker uh, appears to be engaging with the the rank and file in a way that many of his predecessors didn't. I wonder how long that'll go on. Yeah, yeah. He mixed freely on Beacon Hill. You know, guys like DeLeo and the Senate president, they all knew him as, you know, a young up-and-comer. You know, and that was a point that, that was made during that press conference that Baker had with the three legislative leaders after they met on Monday, I believe, it almost seemed, you know, they, they, they all stressed that they'd known each other for a long time. And it almost looked like an old friend was being welcomed back into the Beacon well, Hill fold. You know, in contrast to Governor Deval Patrick, who when he came in was this Beacon Hill outsider who'd ran against the culture of Beacon Hill. Maybe they have less reason to bristle at Baker's arrival than they did at Patrick. Deval Patrick remade the state party but he remade it in something of an outsider's image. Flip it over to Baker. Baker ran as the outsider, as a Republican, but as something of an ultimate insider. So paradox abounds. (laughs) Okay, Peter, I'm going to pause this conversation for a moment. We've got Lynn Ketterer, who is the proud winner of our final election prediction challenge here at the Scrum. Hi, Lynn. Hi, Lynn. Congratulations. Good Boy, job. Thank you very much. I was an entertaining email to get yesterday. Excellent. <laughs> All right. So tell us a little bit, Peter Kadzis and I, about how you went about predicting who was going to win these five races. The first 
first thing I did was uh, I got, well, I got the Twitter from uh, David Bernstein saying, do this poll. So I said, okay. And questioning obedience to David Bernstein. <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely. And then, Thank you, um, David. you know, then I just opened up a beer and I sat down and said, okay, well, let's see, how do I think these are going to shake out? You know, I didn't have huge algorithms going on. It was just sort of a fun little thing that I spent maybe a minute or two on. I mean, for the governor's race, I certainly tried to subtract out what I thought the independents were going to take. And, um, and then I just made uh, what I thought were just educated guesses. All right. You are, I believe, affiliated with the Maura Healy campaign, correct? I am. I'm a volunteer on the Maura Healy campaign. So hey. that was my biggest, you know, my biggest mistake, I guess. I was off by a little over five percentage points on that one. You overestimated on that. I did. You I had really Healy with 67.2, yeah. So that was a little more optimism, I think, than reality kind of coming through on that one. Um, I was a little more optimistic, and, uh, you know, I'll give her something to shoot for next time. Hey, Lynn, where are you from originally? Where were you born? Uh, Hanover, New Hampshire. Oh, okay. Is there so a... I, guess, I guess ever since a young child, I was sort of inundated with all the politics every four years. So maybe that helped me. Lynn Ketterer, congratulations on winning our prediction challenge. And congratulations, too, on being part of a uh, victorious campaign this fall. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. Take care, guys. Take care, Lynn. Bye-bye. Bye. Peter Kadzis, uh, on that note, I'm going to go to Beacon Hill, either to the filibuster or Capitol Coffee to talk with Senator Mo Cowan. I'll let you know where we end up. You can't go wrong. All right. I've been over for two hours. We've got a medium cup of coffee and um, one of the blueberry muffins. Anything else? Uh, No, that'll be at these two. Seven eighty-five. Thank you. It's been awesome. Told you. You did. Told you. I used to come over almost every morning. I come over here. You know, this little stretch. Listen, if you're in the Commonwealth, you're up in Boston. Come spend some time up here on uh, on Bowdoin Street and visit the local local establishments. Having never spent time here like you did, yeah. but just over the years passing through. I always feel like this area has a little, it's almost a little Dickensian, like in the winter, you know, the, the architecture, the yeah. feel, it just, it feels different from the rest of the city in an appealing way. It's sort of a throwback, but in the best sense of the, of the phrase. Look, there's, there was a very popular television show for, for the kids out there called Cheers, where um, you walk in, everybody knows your name, uh, the theme song. You know, I like coming back up here because, you know, they're the last people around town who still make me feel important. I should, <laughs> I should actually mention at this juncture that in yes. the five minutes when we were looking for a place to go, you had about a half dozen people hail you from across the street, come over to you, shake your hand. So I think you're underselling your uh, your legacy a little bit, maybe. But three of those people thought I was David Ortiz, by the way. But they... <laughs> All right, I should mention, we are here at the Capitol Coffee Shop with former Senator Mo Cowan, who's been kind enough to join us to talk Prince and politics. Senator, thank you for uh, making time to to wrap with us. I want to start by asking you about your fondness for Prince, which I've uh, discussed a little bit with you on Twitter over the months, I guess. But when did you first become a a Prince fan? What was the album that made you a big Prince fan? Mm. Well, uh, great question, Adam. Thanks for having me. I'm honored to be on the scrum. Um, I'm hoping, uh, for both our sakes, this becomes the most uh, favored uh, and popular uh, podcast ever, but the uh, so look my my affection for Prince developed what I'd like to think early on, sort of middle school, high school years. Um, I had older cousins and who had this was back in the day when we had things called albums, and uh, they had Prince albums that 
some of his early stuff was uh, was sort of uh, very raw, very visceral. And, uh, you know, this was before Tipper Gore uh, caused us all to put labels on stickers, uh, on albums. So, you know, he had some pretty, uh, for the time, some out there stuff. You're talking about songs like Do Me Baby, Soft and Wet, Dirty Mind, tunes like that? Uh, that was Adam, not me, by the way. I just want the record to reflect. It was he who was offering those scandalous titles. Uh, I w- <laughs> yes, uh, you know, the Dirty Mind album, the first Prince album. I mean, just classic music that sort of fused R&B, funk. There's something that just, you know, first time you heard it, it just captured you. And you realize it's a different kind of musician. It's a different kind of music. Uh, it was freer. It was, it was, it was... As I said, raw, not as, in, not as meaning unfinished, but sort of spoke more about human emotions and, and, and human contact. All right, so my final Prince question yeah. for you. If the 2014 election were a Prince song, what Prince song would it be? First of all, let me applaud you. That might be the most awesome question I've ever been, uh, I've ever been asked. How about, uh, how about, the season is wrong, but... Sometimes it snows in April. It's pretty spare, it's a pretty simple arrangement, but it talks about both despair, but also hope, right? And so I imagine there are some Dems, both in the Commonwealth and around the country, who sort of, certainly late Tuesday night, maybe early Wednesday, felt sense of despair. But I would tell them all, Wednesday, the sun rose, you know, the oceans didn't recede. No meteor struck the earth. Um, so out of that, a hope comes despair. It's one, actually one of my favorite Prince songs, uh, just because it's so simple and it's so poignant to me. Um, and in some sense, that's kind of what election's about. It's such a simple but poignant civic process. Simply get up on that election day, go cast a ballot for the person or people you think are best prepared and able to uh, tackle the issues that we care most about, or at least we ought to care most about. I wish more people would uh, both vote and uh, go listen to Sometimes It Snows in April. You have uh, a sense, better than most, of, of how this new Senate, this new GOP-controlled Senate, might operate, how they might do business or not do business with President Obama. I'm wondering, based on what you saw down there as a senator, uh, what should the president expect from uh, a Mitch McConnell-led Senate? And what, if anything, might they be able to collaborate on? As a you know, person who watches this stuff from afar, I find it hard to imagine them collaborating on much. But you've seen Mitch McConnell up close and personal. Uh, it, could he really make common ground with the president and vice versa? You know, I think it's actually in the uh, Republican leadership's interest to actually try to find common ground with the president. And look, as soon as the 2014 midterms were over a week ago, the conversation immediately shifted to 2016. The Republicans want to win back the White House. If they want to have a chance at doing so, I think, they need to show that now that they're in charge of Congress, Congress uh, will seem to be something, uh, will seem to be, needs to be less dysfunctional, and they need to put some wins on the board, right? And to do that, because they don't have a supermajority, they're going to need to work with the Democrats, not just the Democrats in Congress, but the White House. So, and at the same time, uh, candidly and respectfully, I think the president, uh, as he's nearing the end of his term, uh, needs to put some points on the board, too. And he's put a lot up there. And frankly, I think, uh, with respect to my colleagues in the Senate, I think they might have uh, 
they might have done more in running with this president, running on his record, which in some very important categories is very strong economically, uh, however you feel about the health care law, the fact that more and more people have insurance. I mean, it's a long line. The economy is growing at 3.2 percent, you know, and that all important uh, metric, how much are you paying for gas? Gas is less than three dollars a gallon. You know, that that's all happening in an Obama administration. Given the successes that you just referenced, why do you think so few Democrats did embrace the president's record when they were campaigning? I, I think one thing the Republican Party did nationally much better than the Democrats is finding a message and sticking with it. And the, Demo and the Republican message was everything is the president's fault, right? Whatever the facts may be, let's just keep saying everything's the president's fault. And they counted on uh, the majority of people, those who were paying attention, to... Uh, you know, to buy into that uh, and count on the fact that we in our busy lives aren't, don't have the time or the inclination to sort of dig deep on some important issues. What was Mitch McConnell like when you were down in the Senate? I mean, did you have conversations with him over your time there? Was he friendly, welcoming, uh, standoffish, aloof, none of the above? So it turns out, and this is, uh, I'm breaking this news for the first time, so Leader McConnell and I both wrestled in high school, so every Thursday... Uh, at 11 a.m., we'd gather in his palatial office, and um, and we'd actually wrestle. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm joking, of course. Um, you know, I wish I could tell you that I spent a lot of time with uh, Mitch McConnell. And however you may feel about him, here's one thing I will say about him. I actually do think he's a serious man, a serious thinker, and, um, you know, obviously fiercely protective of his party and principles. You know, the morning I was, uh, the governor announced he was appointing me to the Senate, you know, as is tradition, you reach out to the Senate leaders, both Harry Reid and Mitch McConnell, and you, you're told the protocol, you don't refer to either one as senator, you refer to them both as leaders, one's the majority leader, one's the minority leader. I, I call uh, Leader Reid's office, we have a very short but very pleasant conversation. Uh, most conversations with Harry Reid are pretty short. Um, and then uh, we had arranged a time for me to call Leader McConnell's office, and uh, I get on the phone, and his assistant says, hold. And uh, he comes on the phone. He's got this really deep, rich Kentucky drawl. And he says, well, Mr. Cowan, is it? Welcome to the Klan. And I said, thanks. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, But it was, he, was, uh, he was a very... By the way, that's with a C for those out there keeping score. But the, he was a very, uh, in my time in the Senate, while our interactions were few and far between, uh, he was always very cordial with me. Um, we spoke a little bit after the marathon bombing because uh, one of the victims actually had roots, uh, had some ties to Kentucky. Uh, we talked about that a little bit. Um, you know, and believe it or not, and this is hard for people to believe, there's a far more collegiality in the chamber than is uh, ever portrayed po uh, publicly. Uh, and like most members of the Senate, uh, Leader McConnell you know, warmly welcomed me into the body and uh, uh, we had a very cordial relationship. Uh, again, did not spend much time together. Uh, one of the more interesting things I noticed, every morning the tradition is the two leaders come to the floor to open the Senate and they often talk about each other but rarely talk to each other. And so it's fascinating to see that, uh, particularly when I was sitting in the presiding officer's chair, uh, because when someone is talking on the Senate floor, the person they're actually speaking to is the presiding officer. And uh, so Republican or Democrat, you know, you listen to everybody's viewpoint on every issue. And so 
you could see the sort of interpersonal relationships or lack thereof among some of the members. Let me ask you about state politics. Were you surprised by anything that happened last week on Election Day, or were the results that we saw, starting with Charlie Baker winning the governorship, what you anticipated? I wouldn't say I was surprised. Um, so I said after the primary that I expected the uh, gubernatorial race to be very, very close. Uh, others disagreed with me, including others I work with. Uh, but I just had the sense that this campaign, where you had two candidates seeking redemption from 2010 losses, both feeling the pressure and the desire to sort of retool themselves and not only sort of um, make amends for that, if you will, if that's how you want to look at it, but also uh, define their vision for the Commonwealth moving forward and needing to do that in the context of, um, frankly, the Deval Patrick administration, which, and where he remains still, a very popular political figure. You know, Charlie couldn't do as he did in 2010, try to run a sort of a more angrier campaign about had enough of Deval Patrick, because clearly that was not the case, and where Martha Coakley needed to try to run a campaign where she was close enough to this administration or policies, but at the same time create distance and share her own vision. And that's a very, those are difficult needles to thread for both candidates. Was the outcome in any way an indirect criticism of the governor? I really don't think so. But look, let me acknowledge to your listeners, you know, obviously I have a particular bias here, but I, I... I think this has been a very successful administration. Uh, look, you can list uh, the challenges they've had to face over the last year in particular. And, but they're, they're, in any administration, certainly over eight years, there have been challenges. I think the hallmark of this administration, this governor, is that when problems arise, and they always arise in any administration, they take various shapes and sizes. The question is, do you face them? I mean, first of all, you have to find them, face them, and then fix them. And I think that has been the hallmark of the Deval Patrick administration, Deval Patrick's leadership, and it is a form of leadership, right? And, you know, I hope, like all, all right-thinking people should hope, that the Baker administration has absolutely no uh, challenges or calamities on their watch. But uh, I doubt that's going to be the case, and when they happen, I hope that the next administration does what this administration does, which is fix and find, face, and fix the problems, because they're going to come up. And Charlie Baker, above all else, knows from his previous time here that those problems do come up. Now, Charlie Baker ran as a Deval Patrick Republican, right? He learned in 2010 what it actually takes to run a winning campaign here. And you, you look at some of his policy positions today, they're very different from where they were in 2010 and much closer to where Deval Patrick has been a long time. Give like, me some examples. I'll give you an example. In 2010, he ran, he was, he was publicly opposed to expanding uh, rail service to the South Coast. And this campaign, he embraced it fully, you know, uh, and I think he recognized, and look, I'll give him credit for evolving, right? But he evolved into a candidate, and I hope a governor who recognizes that the current administration has done a lot of good for a lot of people around this Commonwealth, the entire Commonwealth, and he's going to build on those, right? There's always opportunity to improve, and I think Martha would have done the same. And I think if there were a third term of the Val Patrick administration, he would look to improve on the things that are, you know, what I've always admired about Governor Patrick. He didn't spend a whole lot of time when, when things went wrong trying to find somebody to blame. He says, look, this is on our watch. Let's fix it. Let's try to make sure it doesn't happen again. I, I hope uh, Governor-elect Baker and his team will be the same way.
couple more questions for you. You mentioned a, a hypothetical Deval Patrick third term and what we might see were that to occur. Oh, I think I know where this is going. Of course you do. Of course you do. Uh, do you think we'll see I him? I am not running for president. Let me put that out there right now. Do you think we'll see Governor Patrick make a return to public life, uh, whether it is as an appointed uh, member of a Democratic administration, uh, presidential administration, or as a candidate for higher office, whatever that may be? You know, I hope the governor continues to have a public, have a voice in the public policy arena and, and continues to use what I think is his considerable skill and leadership and perspective to help shape policy, not just in Massachusetts, but, but broader than that. You know, I don't necessarily think that means he needs to run for office again. And I don't think, you know, he wants to spend the next four years on TV or radio shows second, guess, second guess, guessing the next administration. That's not who he is. But I think he started this process. He ran for governor because he felt he had something to offer the people of Massachusetts. I think he's offered a great deal. And I encourage him to, to continue to have that voice. You know, everything he says to me, which is what he says to everyone else publicly, is, you know, this, we are watching the waning days of his uh, elected life. And I take him at his word. Um, and I don't, see, I don't see him taking a post in the, the current Obama administration. He's committed to returning to private life, and but I, to me, that doesn't mean he can't continue to have a public voice. Now, of course, i got to ask you about you as well. You've ruled out a run for the presidency. My recollection is watching the press conference when you were appointed to the, uh, to the Senate, my recollection is that you've ruled out running for re-election in that office. I can't remember if you ruled out ever running for higher office again. So let me ask you, might you run for something down the road? Do you have an itch at all, or are you happy in the private sector? Well, I think politically, electorally right now, I'm planting the seeds um, for my oldest son's campaign for student body president. He doesn't know it yet, right? But uh, I'm going to start a super PAC. Um, no, seriously, you know, when I, when I, when the governor appointed me, I said exactly what I meant at the time, which was, you know, I have no, I had no intentions of running for office, uh, not that office or not any other. Although I will tell you this, and I'll just being candid, you know, the more my experience in public service, both at the State House here in, in Boston and in uh, Washington, D.C., certainly gave me a deeper appreciation for the ability of those who hold those offices, should they choose, to have really, really powerful and positive impact on people. And I'll be honest with you, that is, that's alluring. It's attractive to be, in a, to be empowered to help other people. Um, I don't know what the future holds. Um, well, look, you know, check with me in 10 years. I'll let you know what I'm thinking. And for the moment, like the governor, I'm enjoying private life and I'm enjoying the time I have with my family. And uh, except for the time I spent on the scrum, um, I'm enjoying being out of the public eye. <laughs> all right. So I think that based on that answer, I can I can tell all the people who've walked by and waved at you, given you a thumbs up, uh, you know, walked up to you, shaking your hand. If they want to launch a draft Mo Cowan movement, now is the time, right? As I told you earlier, uh, this has been a very expensive outing to me because, you know, I gave all those people 10 bucks who've been waving at me. So it's been a very expensive morning. So, look, I, I, I love the fact and I'm honored that people think I did a good job both in the Senate and in my time working with Governor Patrick. And it's, it's rewarding that people say nice things about you or ask why, why didn't you run or will you ever run. Um, but, you know, that's based on very limited exposure to me. Um, it's not the time for me to mount a campaign of any sort. That's not to say that I periodically don't sit around and uh, 
on my spiral notebook doodling campaign slogans. But the... <laughs> With stars drawn yes, in exactly, the margins, exactly. right? <laughs> exactly. Uh, 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 one of my favorites is uh, We Won't Mow Mow. So that's... Um, so anyway, but <laughs> I kid, I kid. I'm not running for anything. I, cause that's, I need to say that because uh, if uh, certain members of my household are listening, I want to be clear that I am not publicly saying anything about mounting campaigns. Also, probably my employer wants me to say that too. So. All right, noted. <laughs> so, so terminate the draft mo movement that may have started yeah. when people heard those words. Senator Mo Cowan, thank you a ton for talking with us. It was really, really enjoyable. Thank you for having me on the Scrum, Adam. It's uh, been my pleasure, my treat, and thanks for uh, spending some time with me here at Capital Coffee. Come by, get some coffee and some breakfast. Tell them Mo sent you. It'll still cost the same, but <laughs> you'll enjoy the meal. All right, as always, you can subscribe to the Scrum Podcast in iTunes. You can also find us online at wgbhnews.org slash scrum. I'm Adam Riley. Our producer today was Abby Ruzica. Our engineer was Jane Kippick. We were also joined by Peter Kadz, a senior news editor of wgbhnews.org. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.